0: is an ophthalmologist in Lawton, Oklahoma and is affiliated with multiple hospitals in the area including Comanche County Memorial Hospital, Southwest Medical Center and Lawton Indian Hospital. Is an ophthalmologist in Lawton, Oklahoma and is affiliated with multiple hospitals in the area including Comanche County Memorial Hospital, Southwest Medical Center and Lawton Indian Hospital. She received her medical degree from the University of Missouri Kansas City School of Medicine and has been in practice for 40 years. She specializes in refractive surgery and is experienced in refractive surgery, cataract surgery, general comprehensive ophthalmology, laser refractive surgery, and glaucoma. And as a medical student at age 20, she experienced a profound NDE in which she realized she had come home. Later, in telling her dad, also an MD, about her experience, she learned he'd had an an, NDE himself when he was just age four, but which he remembered well. Jean spent a month in intensive care, working hard to recover from uh, her post-viral Jacksonian variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome, took her a year to recover, including relearning how to walk and build strength and endurance back to normal, and in spite of doubts about her ability to return to medical school, she was able to graduate with her class in spite of missing many classes. So clearly she was a better student than I would have been. Jean, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you, Lee. Uh, Jean, this all started while you were taking a medical exam, I understand, and you got double vision. You knew something was going wrong. So what happened then?
1: Yeah, so it was a Saturday morning four-hour multiple-choice exam, and we did this quarterly in a year's time. So it was something you had to do, and Mm -hmm. um, it was... Partway through the exam, I noticed that there was two of everything. So if I closed one eye, that double went to single. So I, it started out being occasional double, and then throughout the course of the exam, it became fairly constant double. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't have anything else at that time going on other than I just wanted to get done with my test and go figure out why this was happening. And um, so I drove back home to my apartment um, with one eye closed. Um wow. And, um I noticed that by then and this was several hours later that my eyelids just really felt heavy. Hmm. Um they they it's almost like I wanted to take uh, my fingers and pick them up. Um they just and I wasn't tired. So it wasn't anything like that. And so I called my father who was a OBGYN physician at the time and and Talked to him about it. And my mother, I I, I was raised in a home where my mother, when I was in third grade, developed multiple sclerosis. So, in talking with my dad, he thought that I really should come from Kansas City, where I was, over to where he was located in Independence, Missouri, to the local hospital there. So, and he would meet me there with an assembled team of people to figure this out. And over the phone, he said, he thought, well, you know it could be anything, but it certainly could be multiple sclerosis. Your mother's had it, you know, and so I thought, "Oh, Dad, gum, I don't want that but anyway, no. I went, and um sure enough, he had a neurosurgeon and a neurologist assembled there, and um um, they decided to admit me, and really, just hour by hour, I noticed things were you know started in my eyes and my eyelids, and then my chewing muscles were next thing that hit, um, couldn't smile, couldn't chew very easily. Um, and then swallowing, of course ensued problems with just swallowing. Um, and, uh, my, my head felt heavy to hold up. And, um, then it progressed into my shoulders and so forth. And it just went on in a descending paralysis sort of way. Mm. And, um, So that's what happened. Um, And uh, partway through, they decided, well, they were trying to figure out what this was. And, you know, I was in med school at the time, so I knew just enough to get into trouble (laughs) thinking about things. And um, uh, so they kind of narrowed it down to this, uh, a couple of different things. One was, um, again, Beret syndrome. Usually that's a, a, a different type of paralysis. It starts in the lower extremities and moves up. Um, Um, so it's, uh, it's usually different. Um, and then, um, gravis was the other one that they were concerned about. And, um, so they assembled and discussed it with colleagues around, you know, that they knew and, and thought, well, um, there is a Jacksonian variant of guillain that it could be because it, although that's rare, it can do this, you know, and, um, So then, um, they decided to try to figure that out. Um, They would do um, a physostigmine challenge to figure out, you know, if it was a myasthenia gravis type situation. And the young neurologist that was taking care of me at the time um, uh, didn't mean to, but uh, gave me uh, uh, sequential overdoses of uh, the physostigmine, and. It just didn't mean to at all, I'm I'm certain. And to this day, I'm very kind of glad he did because of what happened.
0: So (laughs) That's what stopped your breathing, wasn't it?
1: It it is, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, by itself, uh, Guillain-Barre, when it's at its worst, it can be something that also stops your breathing. But I hadn't gotten to that point. But I was at the point that day where right after he had given these to me in four rounds uh, just too much, Mm -hmm. Um, they put me in a a wheelchair just a short distance away and taking me to the respiratory department because I felt like I'd done like 2,000 setups and I just couldn't do one more when it came to breathing. I was really feeling like I had to think and really want to be able to take a breath Mm -hmm. because I was very exhausted at that point.
0: This is something that COVID patients are going through these days.
1: Indeed, yeah. indeed, um, and so that's the way I felt. And I was explaining this to the to the young lady in the respiratory department. And um, so when this happened, um, I I don't re- I I don't recall much other than I was explaining that to her. And next thing I know, I felt like I was in a movie theater because I was surrounded by darkness, um, but. Uh, I could, I could see from below me, everything that was going on and anything I looked at was in incredible detail. Um, just, uh, you could see fibrils on things. You could see the way you can't normally see. And of course I'm an ophthalmologist. So to this day, that was astonishing to me Mm -hmm. that I had spherical 360 degrees, um, you know, You could
0: also see through the floors and walls, couldn't you?
1: Yes, yes, because I didn't exactly realize that, and that's why I really thought I was in a movie, because you can't normally do this, but I was several floors up. I am am a scuba diver, and, um, you know, so when you're diving, and if you're 30 feet down, you kind of know what 30 feet looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't normally have 30-foot ceilings, but anything I wanted to look through, I could see through, I could... Go through wow. and the other key is that who who I am or who you are or who any of us are is is always who we are, and that was always constant throughout this whole thing that happened um, so uh, ultimately um, uh, I, I just kept watching and i couldn 't understand I, I wanted to tell them, kind of like you do sometimes in a movie. Um, I wanted to tell them, you don't need to worry about that lifeless body because she was really frantic and clearly there was nobody in that body. And I could not understand why she didn't get that. Mm. And it was just uh, very obvious, but she didn't seem to understand that. And um, she was uh, very alarmed. And uh, meanwhile, often up to the side, uh, behind me, there was this emanating ball of amazing, beautiful, um, lo- loving light um, that that I still struggle today with how to describe this because I don't do it justice. Um, but um, I just couldn't wait to go there. And it wasn't beckoning me. It wasn't making me do this, nothing like that. But by simply wanting to go, I just couldn't wait to go to that. Um, it was not frightening at all. Um, I, at that point, had no idea that I had died. Um, my my transit seemed to be rather rapid. And then the lighting situation was such that where I had been um, observing down below, that the body scene down below was kind of dark Mm. Uh, and everything around me was dark, but this light was up and back to my right. And it was a living type of light. Um, uh, It was a light that was full of uh, pure absolute goodness. Um, And um, so I, I just really couldn't wait to get there uh, to it. And, and I partway there, I I paused just simply by wanting to pause because I realized, oh, my goodness, I'm dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't frightened, but it, dis- it did cause me to pause. But then there was this light, loving light, that loved me with a love that was pure and absent of anything evil or conditional or anything except pure love. Uh, tremendous love and and I just couldn't wait to get there, yes. so simply by desiring that, I more rapidly than what I already had done uh, arrived and um when I did it's kind of like uh Lee when you first come home and you you come through. You know, from, let's say, your garage into your, your, your foyer, you come in and without saying anything, it's just in your head, you're just sort of like, oh, I'm home. And, um, or you cross your threshold, oh, I'm home. And it was like that, because when I arrived at this place, it was familiar, it was comfortable, it was not new. Um, I, getting there, I couldn't wait to get there, but it was really from where I'd come from. It was like coming home. I had been there before. Um, and, and that's quite important. Um, it, it's very comfortable. Um, I I encountered um, a number of, I'm just, I, I just struggle with how to describe them, but it's a place full of for, uh, glorified, beautiful souls, every one of whom loved me and all those others within it, very deep, uh, broad, unending, unconditional, pure, ecstatic, deep love. And I had the same love towards each of them and the place. Um, and it was striking to me because I, I was only 20 at the time. Um, but I, you know, I was not a perfect person. I had made mistakes. I could definitely have done or said things much better back on earth. Um, There was also, strikingly, a very enhanced wisdom and base of knowledge that all souls, including myself, each of us had while we were there. Now, in no way am I suggesting that this enhanced wisdom was equal to that of God because that was never the case. It's just that it's different than what you have here in our humanness. I would say, too, while talking with all these, I'm going to call them glorified souls, And I could talk to them all at once, which was really fun. Was it through thought? Yes. You don't need mouths there. So while there, we were fully aware of the souls back here on earth as well, all the time. Just no, no details, just generalities. There were never tears, though, or fears up there like what we have here. There was never such things as that. It was still only absolute love because that's what this place is. That's what we felt and always knew. And there were many of us, the beauty that emanated from each of these glorified souls is for me still very hard to describe. There was a kind of a translucent, radiant color play that as if came or emanated through each of them as well as me. The Bible, when you study it, it talks about the glory of God. And that's one of the best ways I can describe it. But some of it was colors I've never known or seen since, like multifaceted lights or something that emanated through each of us. And um, it, was, it wasn't it was just light, but it was this loving light. And I came to know that this loving light that was there was, was part of God. It was just heaven and God and everything all at once. Um, my dilemma when I got there was that you know, I I hadn't lived very long, but the people there were so amazing.
0: You described them as beautiful, loving souls. Were they human at one time, or were they angels? Um, or were they people that you knew at one time?
1: So I, at that point in my life, I had not known someone that had passed away. So mm. if they were my great-grandparents, I don't know. Yes. But I will say there's not old, there's not infants there. That's nothing of what I saw. But the best way I can say, so like when you study the Bible, like I've done after this happened, we are made in God's image. So they were, you and I as humans are made in his image. So they are in a human-like image, but they're different than what we are here. They don't need, I mean, you can, for example, talk with them, which I just loved, like I said, all at once, didn't have to talk with one at a time like you and I are doing right now.
0: Yes. What did you talk about?
1: I was welcomed. And I was just in general given to know that it was up to me whether I stayed or, or went back. And my dilemma with that was that I had not really lived my life. And life, as as I learned there, it is, it's, it's a gift. And it's a place of learning. Life is not about you or me or what all we accomplish or whatever. Instead, it's all about what we do to glorify God in our journey and and not all the bad things that happen to us, but what do we do about those bad things? Or what do we do about those unfortunate things that uh, we see or, or are involved in? And how do we make good out of that? Um, and, and so I hadn't really had time at 20 to do much of that, I hadn't been married, I hadn't had children, and I had thought I was supposed to be a physician. But clearly, I left a body that was paralyzed, or mostly so, and I couldn't understand why Why would I go back to that, because I, I would not be able to complete school, and was I even supposed to be a physician? And so just in general terms, nothing in specifics, I was given to know um, that Yes, and the word that they used, they said it, it that it's my calling to, to be a physician and that I shouldn't worry about that paralyzed illness back there because as a reason to, to, to not go back, because in general terms, that would subside over time. And I wasn't given any details again. Um, the other thing I didn't ask for, but was given, uh, was I was made aware of my parents' anguish and pain if I were to choose to stay in this very perfect, familiar, immensely loving, all knowing place. Um, And I didn't ask for this, but, but I thought, Oh my. But then they, at the same time, let me know that this would not be permanent. It would not be for forever for them, you know, for the balance of their days, but that over time, this would lessen this anguish that they felt, Mm -hmm. but um, you, you know, what I ended up deciding was because I knew these people, I couldn't make a wrong decision either way. And because these glorified souls there would still be there when I returned someday, um, I really wanted the gift of life back um, and, and I wanted to return. And the other thing I have to say is that time and space, as you and I know it here on Earth, It's not the same there. It's not that it doesn't exist there. It's just, I'm simply saying it's a different sort of timeline by comparison. So um, this all happened maybe for a length of time that I was down, maybe 15 to 17 minutes. Um, But I felt like I had a half a day with these heavenly souls. Um, We had a glorious time really talking um, just in general, about so so many amazing things, and the love was just mesmerizing to me. Um, tr- truly, just uh, show-stopping to me, um, and and the visual aspects were amazing. Um, and and you know, the other thing I I would say I came to know is that life here you know, it's finite. It It's really like the blink of an eye compared to our eternal home, which is God in heaven. Um, and it was my choice. But when I really came down to it, I, I really wanted to return and complete my journey and my time here on earth in my earth suit, uh, where I would learn um, back here in school. Um, and just out of nowhere, but yet everywhere, all at once, a voice came, um, and, and it said, return, it's not your time. And it, it, it was a show stopping voice. It was a voice that caused all of the other voices to cease. Um, I'd mentioned earlier that you could talk to multiple of these all at once, but this came out of everyone. It was a, it was a voice of authority. Um, a firm voice, not a not a mean voice, but a voice of authority. So so it was it was a situation where, um, it, it happened and and I've thought back on it a lot. Well, th- this voice was either that of some kind of an archangel or God Himself. Um, I don't know. I'll know someday, but it it, it nonetheless it it was determined and and I returned. And then faster than any of this happened, they had since moved my body from the respiratory department. I was since moved into an ICU type setting, and there was a full code going on, all kinds of people all around me. And um, I was intubated. And um, uh, in other words, I had a breathing tube. And you couldn't wipe the smile off my face. But it was as if when you were a kid and you were playing ball and you landed, you know, you skid into home plate um, to score, it, it's like that. When you launch back into your human body, it's, it's like a bam. Um, and all of the human traits that you had before are restored, including any pain, discomfort, whatever. And all of your human attributes are fully restored. Now, I didn't go into anything else. I I landed only in my body. And, um, and, and it was, that was amazing. um, Because it completely moved it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I was also when I when this happened, I was overwhelmed. And I really couldn't wait for some odd reason to talk to my father. And I didn't know at the time why, but I knew I needed to go find him. And so I could write on a board. I couldn't talk, but I could write. And I just said, my dad. And um, he hadn't been there when this all happened, but arrived shortly, not long thereafter. Um, And, you know, this all happened in 1977. This was a long time ago. And you could ask me what I had for lunch a week ago on a Saturday or two weeks ago on a Sunday, and I couldn't tell you. But you know what? I can tell you exactly in great detail all aspects of what happened to me as if it just happened yesterday. But it, it clearly didn't. It happened a long time ago.
0: Right. Now, you, your dad was the first person you told about the, the he experience. He and, is. And then he told you that he'd had one himself.
1: He did. And I had not known that about him. And I was so surprised. And he said, well, Jamie said, you'll find that most people don't understand. And and it's really, you, you, you have to learn to not talk about this with just everyone. Because at that time, Lee, in 1977, they really didn't have a medical term that I knew or that my dad knew for it. There probably was one, but I hadn't heard about it. Um, and he hadn't really either, but he, when he was four, he developed, uh, a meningitis, uh, type situation. He was in a small rural town up in Iowa. And at the age of four, he went into a coma. And, um, he was there for several days in a coma and, uh, still breathing and whatnot. And then when he came back and woke up and was restored, kept talking to his mother about, uh, this Jesus fella that he'd been playing with and, and so forth. And, um, uh, you know, she, she couldn't understand why he was talking as if they were like best buddies and like my dad knew him really well. (laughs) And, um, so, uh, fast forward. And then in, um, uh, 1993, my father, passed away. He had a heart attack. And I got a phone call from my mother as the ambulance was taking him off. And I threw on my clothes at 2 a.m. and drove to that hospital. It's the same hospital that I was in earlier when my NDE happened. And um, I ran in and as I was walking into the emergency room, I looked over my dad's head to look at the, 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 various EKG readings and whatnot. And I realized he was in cardiogenic shock and probably not going to make it. And um, I looked at him and he was just fairly frantic. It's a, it's an awful way to die um, because uh, the people, they, they drown in their fluids. It's kind of like you take somebody and, and wrap uh, thick heavy chains around their body and toss them in a swimming pool and expect them to um, not drown. I mean, they – they drown. And it's a drowning death that they go through when they, you know, go through this. And so um, I I could tell him he he was being sent back home to heaven. And I hated this, but I understood it well. And I I was so happy for him um, because it's an awesome place. Uh, And all I said to him in front of my mother was, I said, Daddy, I'll see you on the other side. I'll take care of mom. Don't worry about a thing. And that's all I needed to hear. And then his face went placid and very peaceful. And yet he was alive. He had still his own heart rate. Um, My mother was angry with me for giving him permission to leave because she felt like she should have been the one to do that. But I just sort of knew this. And I said, Mom, he can understand you. You can go ahead and please talk to him. Say your goodbyes to him. And, Mom, in the blink of an eye, you'll see him again because life is so short. And... um, so he did pass. And two weeks later, his mother, my grandmother, died. Um, and in going through both my father's stuff and then my, my grandmother's stuff, I found her diary on my father. My father's first name was Herman. His last name was same as mine, house hair. And um, I found her diary. And I was so excited to find this. I didn't even know she had one. And I read through this part where she called my father little Herman in her diary and she wrote him each day and she talked about how he got this high fever and then he was um, in a coma and you know the doctors were there and her anguish as a mother you know worried for her son and then you know then there's a little pause in this uh, diary of hers and then he's back he's he's awake and she's ecstatic and he's actually eating again and he's he's getting up and he's starting to play again. And he was just four years old at the time. And so all of her, it it was, it was good for me because it confirmed for me what my father had said, not that I needed that, but it was nice to see uh, this happen. And, and um, in it, it, she didn't talk about what he explained, but that was really good. Now, the other thing that was interesting is going back to my situation. So I did have a Jacksonian variant of Guillain-Barre and most people that have uh, Guillain-Barre don't necessarily fully recover, as nor in the timeline by which that happened. Um, You know, at least in my case. Um, And so that, that was uh, very interesting in that, you know, I, Unprecedented. Uh, when I came back, I was in the hospital maybe around three weeks total, including my ICU time. And then I was just home for a week, and then I went back to med school. And when I was preparing to depart the hospital, the doctors came by to talk with me and they sat me down and they were really straight with me, like straight in the eye to me. And they said, You know, Gene, you're really going to have to reconsider. Medicine, because you're not going to be able to probably go back to medical school. You're going to have weakness in your extremities. You're going to have some double vision issues. You're going to have problems with being able to keep up. You're. It takes a year or longer to get better from this. And I was like, <laughs> you know, um, I realize that, but why don't you just write me a return to school, and I'll use good common sense. Yeah. And I I didn't tell him that I knew otherwise. And sure enough, I was able to go back to school within a month, which is unbelievable. That's really unbelievable that that happened. And then further, when I went on to do my ophthalmology training up at Mayo Clinic, in my internship year, there was a young ear, nose and throat uh, resident who... Came in and I, I heard about him because ophthalmology residents, which is what I was, and ear, nose, and throat residents, which is what he was, were very similar because we were kind of on the head, right? And I heard that he was in the Mayo ICU. I, I went to Mayo Clinic and he was in the Mayo Clinic ICU. His first name was Rob. And I went and go found him and I said, Rob, my name's Jean and you don't know me. But I had... What you have, you have guillain and you are on a ventilator, and you're on a rocking bed, and you're not doing very well because you're completely paralyzed. But I am here to tell you that you can beat this, you can do this. And it caused me, Lee, to so overwhelmingly appreciate with great gratitude the fact that I was fully restored.
0: Jean, let me ask you, do you think that there was some sort of A miracle that accompanied your experience, your NDE. Do you suppose you were given some extra strength
1: because of your NDE? Yes, absolutely.
0: So so not everyone who had your disease would necessarily come back as strongly as you did.
1: Correct. Correct. To be honest, this Guillain-Barre is not a real common sort of thing. Maybe one in 100,000 get it. It's post-viral. Zika virus is commonly the thing. With right. it, but for me, it personally, I to this day am grateful that I got to talk with Rob. I couldn't go in every day to see him, but I went in most every day, and mm. I would go I, in just really briefly to talk to him and encourage him. And he eventually got out, but then he had to go. He had to a, a trach put in because he couldn't mm. breathe, and then he had to go into a nursing home thing. And we were the same yeah. age.
0: So, Gene, uh, we're we're almost out of time, and I wanted oh, to ask oh. you. You were very blessed by the fact that your father had had an NDE, but probably none of your doctors would have listened to you if you tried to explain to them what you'd been through while your heart was stopped. And back in 1977, that was probably very understandable. But today, 50 years later, almost with all of the information about NDEs, do you see any reason why doctors shouldn't be more well acquainted with the whole experience of the NDE?
1: I know they should because there's a group of us that have this these things happen not everyone that has death arrive get to come back clearly but when we do there's reason for that and it's not any place anyone's place to judge that but to simply listen and be supportive of that group of individuals and you know shame on me but most of my life I really didn't want to say anything uh, because I did tell my pastor when I was younger when this first happened, and he told me that he said, "Well, Gene, you know, a lot of times when you have those things happen, you lost your oxygen, and so that's why uh. your brain, you know, had a dream like this. This wasn't real." And I thought to myself, "You know, I will wait for God to prompt me to tell anyone about this because I do need to tell the story." I need to explain it to people and and it's not right for me to shove it inside because it's really comfortable to just keep it to myself. It's more easy to do that, but I realized that's not the right approach. It's best for me to do that. And so, you know, I'm an ophthalmologist, so I don't run into a lot of patients, but I find myself, no matter what, I knowingly am so happy for people who do and that maybe have been miserable for various health reasons here because I know this place. It's amazing. And and I know that they're whole again, that they're complete.
0: Well, I'm afraid our show is complete as well, Gene. We have run out of time for today, but you've done a a beautiful job of explaining your experience. And and I, I love it that your dad too, also an MD at four years old, was playing with Jesus on the other side. Oh, yes. <laughs> Dr. Jean Househair, thank you so much for uh, sharing the story of your NDE. And I'm sure it's influenced the direction of your life profoundly. If listeners would like to hear the show again or any of our nearly 400 past shows, just go to NDE Radio and hit the past shows button. For more about IANS, go to their website at IANDS.org. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.